listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest started his filmography back in 1998 with a short film and since then has gone on to direct episodes of Law and Order, Downton Abbey, Dracula, The Level, The Punisher, Altered Carbon, and his feature films include Set Fire to the Stars, A Kind of Murder, and his new film, Six Minutes to Midnight, starring Eddie Izzard and Judy Dench. Andy Goddard, welcome to Shoot It Now. Hey, uh, very happy to be here. It sounds like a busy list. And of course, I haven't even mentioned the Amazon Prime series Carnival Row, which uh, we will get to very shortly. But you are coming to us from Prague, where you're filming Carnival Row. First off, though, what drove you into filmmaking and how did all of that start off for you? I guess I was probably an art school dropout going back. This would be like the late 80s, I guess. I think 80, I left school kind of 85, 86. And then I went to art school in Aberdeen. And after about a year, I kind of dropped out. And then I spent like a few years kind of in the wilderness doing all sorts of different jobs. And I guess in retrospect, I was probably a little immature. I was an island boy. I grew up on the Isle of Skye in northern Scotland. So I guess the big city in the wider world was kind of new to me. And I guess there was a kind of naivete, a kind of arrested development. I went to art school with perhaps romantic ideas about joining a band. You know, I was very into music. And so all my heroes, Roxy Music, The Clash, David Bowie, uh, there was this rich history, you know, Mark Bolan. And I think I, I kind of bought into that that myth and that idea. Um, but I always loved movies and I always loved storytelling. And I think one of the things when I finally got my act together and I studied film photography and television at uh, Napier University in Edinburgh, I was on the photography side, which I enjoyed. But a lot of my work always had a narrative to it. I was doing audiovisual work or my photography was always sequential. And, and I love the power of the still image, but I was always hovering around the margins of, of the film side. And I was always moonlighting on to helping out on the, on the move and image side. And I guess it's just a natural progression that when I left college, pursued a film career. I grew up, me and my brother grew up, you know, with a love of stories. I have very vivid memories of watching Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns and growing up with a real love of them. And I have a very sort of ultra vivid memory of that. But I never knew how to, how do you get into that world? To me, it felt like saying you wanted to be an astronaut, you know, to saying I wanted to be a film director. I was always shy about raising my head above the parapet. Um, so I guess when I did finally get an opportunity to make a short film, there was probably a sense of making up for lost time. And, uh, and, I, and I seized it with both hands. So let's now jump all the way to now with Six Minutes to Midnight, which is your latest film. It's a Hitchcockian period war spy thriller, a fascinating cross-mix genre set in a great time period. And it's a great character-driven story, your film. It has a great cast with Eddie Izzard and Judy Dench. It's very much, as I understand it, Eddie's story, I think. How did the project come to you? Well, once again, I was working with Kellen Jones. Uh, Kellen co-wrote it with Eddie and myself. Project had about, you know, a year to 18 months history with, with, with Eddie and Kellen. And basically, Eddie was the architect of the project. And he grew up in Bexhill-on-Sea, which is this coastal town in the southeast coast of England. 
And in later life at the Bexhill Museum, uh, Eddie discovered a school badge there. And it was, and the badge was really the, the, the beginning of this project. And there was a simple school blazer badge from a girls' school that was in Bexhill-on-Sea in the late 1930s. And on this school blazer badge was the Union Jack and the Nazi swastika. And this obviously set bells and whistles in Eddie's head in terms of how can this be? This, this, this kind of truth is stranger than fiction footnote in our, in our fairly modern history that this school existed, that in the 1930s, on the cusp of World War II, there really was uh, this English school whose students were effectively German daughters of the Nazi hierarchy. And that fascinating nugget was the springboard for this story. So the foundations of the idea are based in truth. As the project developed, I think Eddie's love and my love and Kellen's love of 1930s and 1940s wrong man thrillers in the kind of the Ealing Hitchcockian flavor. We sort of married that to foundation of the true events of this story. So it all began with Eddie and then the triangle of Eddie, Kellen and myself. And Andy, tell us a little bit about that writing process. Uh, how did that all work? Because as you mentioned, Eddie was one of the writers, Gillen was the the other. How did all that uh, mash up in terms of getting your voice heard through the screenplay? I think the heart of it was always Eddie. Kellen did a lot of heavy lifting in the early stages. And when I came on board, I loved the potential of the project, but there were certain scriptorial things I wanted to move around and there was certain things objectively I felt that we could develop further. Um, it was wonderful working with Eddie. He's so generous, he's so given, and I really wanted to sort of serve this project as best I could as a director and a writer, um, because it was such a labor of love for Eddie. So yeah, it's, um, I guess, part script editor, being an objective voice and questioning if we were taking certain story events down the right route, how the whole narrative was holding together, Obviously, I'm working in conjunction with Lionsgate. Kellen and I would sort of tag team the writing. Then we'd show it to Eddie and he would throw in his 10 cents. It was a very organic process that continued all the way through the shooting. And we were tweaking and modifying the script right throughout the shoot. Yeah, it's a very organic process. And I guess Kellen being an actor, he has an ear for dialogue. And I felt confident uh, on the back of Set Fire to the Stars. This is like the right project for us. And it was great. Uh, we became sort of three amigos. And I guess there came a point where Eddie had to put on his acting hat. I had to put on my director's hat. But we always knew that Kellen was always around as a writer if we needed to, to tweak things or nudge things left or right. So I understand that Eddie knew Judy Dench. Was that how she ended up coming into the project through Eddie? Yes, it was. Uh, there was a, a list of one for the role of Miss Rockall, the governess of the school, and that was Judy. It was a kind of magic wand wish list, and I thought, can we really get Judy? But on the back <laughs> of the Stephen Free, Eddie worked with Judy on Victorian Abdul, Stephen Freer's movie, and even prior to that, Judy knew Eddie. She big fan of his comedy shows. She would go and see his stand-up shows. Eddie told me that she would write messages on banana skins and, and have them sent to him backstage. They've got this wonderful sort of bond together. So, and he had kind of pitched the project, I think, when he was working with her on Victorian Abdul. He had spoken about this girls' school, um, and she didn't let us down. She was magnificent. And the Zig Heil, what an image that was in the film. And I don't know why it shocked me so much when I saw it, probably because it was Judy Dench, this iconic actor, raising her arm and doing it. Andy, as a filmmaker and writer, when that was written on the page, as a director, it presents itself as a provocative image in your imagination. 
but then when you film it, it elevates and it goes to a higher plane, or at least that's the way that I imagined what was happening with that particular moment. Is that what happened with you in terms of when you actually filmed it and you saw it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was one of a few scenes which never really changed. When I came on board, um, that scene was always in the script. It's probably more than any other sequence in the film. I think it sums up what the movie is about. And you're right, there is a certain cachet and a certain potency to seeing Judy Dench in that sequence that you may not get with another actor playing that role. And that is because of, though she would hate me for saying it, you know, she does have a national treasure status, which, you know, she, she, she kind of very self-deprecatingly always shrugs off. There is a certain relationship between the audience and Judy, I think, just based on her body of work and how long people feel that they have known her and, and loved her. And so I guess seeing seeing that, there is, a, there is something meta about that moment in terms of our understanding of Judy's persona. And seeing her in the context of a scene like that has a certain power. And we were aware of that. And we were aware of a certain kind of, you know, there is a that snapshot of her when she does do the see Kyle, you know, it, 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 it's kind of like a poster image and it is shocking. And I think the combo of Judy and these young girls, um, these brilliant German actresses, just gives that scene a, a, a certain charge. And it was a very difficult scene to do. And having to as you often do with filmmaking, I knew that scene required coverage because of everybody involved. So having to do that scene again and again and again, it did become upsetting for several people on set. And, you know, we had to take a break. Yeah. And I think we're always aware, which is one of the things that we were attracted us to this film was it's a period thriller and we want to entertain. But at the same time, we are going through a period in our history that we're some of the uglier elements of the 1930s seem to be with us again. We were holding up a mirror to some of the things that were going on today. And so that scene more than any other, uh, I'm very proud of that scene. It's immensely powerful. And it's the, it's the scene that sums up what our hero is fighting for. And Six Minutes to Midnight was shot back in 2018. So it had a long uh, post. And then, of course, COVID came along. But you still yes. get... You still got the film released, which was brave, I thought, for the distributor. How did all of that roll out, given the pandemic you know, was around? How did that go for the film? Yeah, I think we had quite a long post-production. We had some pickups. And as I recall by Lionsgate, I think we were going to have a theatrical release. I think it was early last year. So yeah, like many, many films, like many shows, we've been on ice uh, for a long time and we've had this kind of delayed, postponed. It's reduced our theatrical, uh, obviously with everybody self-isolating and lockdowns. But at the same time, I guess, you know, streaming platforms are very much, you know, they, it's the future. We were just relieved and thrilled that the film finally had an opportunity to find its audience, be it streaming or be it in, you know, the, the more marginalized theatrical that we did get. Um, but yeah, it was frustrating having to wait and wait and wait and wait. And when it finally did come out, you know, um, it, it was just great doing the press. And Eddie has been such a fantastic ambassador for the film. And Andy, I'd like to bring into the conversation your cinematographer, Chris Seeger, who is a two-time BAFTA winner. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. 
You worked with Andy as a cinematographer for six minutes to midnight. I'm always fascinated by the amount of cines who either come through from an art degree or a photography route. And I think it was your art school where it all sort of started to, to work for you. Was that, is that correct? Yes, it was. I mean, we're going back in history here. I started off doing uh, studying photography, and then uh, I just found photography was, I enjoyed it, I, mean, I kind of loved photography, but I just found that the people who were doing photography were a bit, bit kind of insular, but um, just not really kind of my type of guys. And down the other end of the corridor at the art college was, was the film and TV section. And in those days, they were edited on the steam back, and you could hear the noise of the sound going back and forth, you know, kind of the, the sound going backwards when <laughs> they wound the film back. And it fascinated me, that sound, and I kind of went down to have a look at these guys and joined in and realised they had kind of tutorials in the local pub, which seemed to suit me down to the ground. Um, and so after a year, I opted out of photography and, and joined cinematography, and thank God I did. I mean, it's, it's, it's teamwork, and that's me. I'm, I'm a team person. I'm not a loner. I like to be involved with, with talented people, and I've been lucky through my career to actually be in that situation, and I obviously took the right decision at the tender age of 20. And you come from a BBC background, so with that in mind, in terms of budgets back then, has some of the budgets today with the streamers surprised you at just how bigger the budgets have become? Like, for instance, a Carnival Row series, which seems to have all the big pieces filmmakers look for to make something really stand out, but it is quite a decent sort of a budget. Yes, we're never told what that budget is, but it's obviously decent. <laughs> um, I mean, it's massive compared to you know, early days in BBC TV. I mean, you know, BBC used to, do, some, do, used to and still do some great dramas, uh, but their budgets are, kind of, are minuscule compared to what is happening on, on, the, on Amazon, Netflix and, and uh, Disney and all these, all these shows mm. now. Um, I suppose it's the advance of TV series has been the demise of, of filmmaking, you know, feature films. You know, Hollywood seems to want to just make kind of blockbusters rather than the drama type films, which they're never sure if they're going to make money from. And it's opened a gap in TV. Writers, producers, directors who used to do films are now working in TV. And there's an insatiable kind of demand for good, well-written uh, TV series. And, uh, you know, people will watch TV series all the time. So it does need money at times to make it look spectacular. And I know a lot of people in the industry are wondering whether the high-budget bubble is going to burst. What, what do you feel? It's an interesting question, that. Um, I think what is the, 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 the fear which I have is that... that you know, you, if you're writing you know, eight, ten-part series constantly and the demand is high from, from everybody, that are you, is, is the quality of that writing going to diminish slightly? And if that happens, then, then what happens to the TV series? What happens to that audience? Equally, there is, a, there is a slot. I mean, there is still a very good slot for making 90-minute, 100-minute, 120-minute film, which you know, TV is not tending to do because they're doing the series of eight, 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 10, 12, 20 episodes. So there's, I think this is not going to die. It's going to it's just gonna evolve, I think. And guys, Carnival Row, this is a pretty cool concept with high production values that we're talking about. Right across the board, you are both on episodes as director and cinematographer. We can see the real money is being spent here to realise the visual aesthetics and the visual effects. 
Andy, back to you. This must be, if not the biggest, certainly one of your biggest projects that you've ever helmed as a director. What are some of the challenges that you face with uh, so many cast and crew to navigate? I think it's to do with spinning a lot of plates in terms of an ensemble cast. And I think it's also to do with serving the showrunner and understanding what the showrunner wants and what the tonality of the show is. And what always drew me to Carnival Row was the idea of a fantasy genre show, but with this very strong and pronounced theme of civil rights, of a civil rights story running through the core of it. Yeah, it's a gigantic show with many moving parts. And on season two, I'm also an executive producer. And the interesting thing is I'm getting to have a peek behind the curtain. But as with all projects, especially working with Chris, it's all about the prep and how wisely you use that prep period to enjoy the ride, really. So tell me, how, how much prep time are you doing before you turn over? It's about a month's prep, roughly, Yeah, got, yeah five, about five weeks, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. The first series, I think, was longer for the beginning of the show, which you know, which we didn't do. But, but there was probably six weeks to get it going. But yes, five seems to be. It. So, I mean, it's it's um, always it seems like five is going to be enough. But then you kind of start rushing through it and think, oh my god, we need more time. But we seem to somehow get that get it all together, and it's um, it's a fun thing to do. It's fabulous. And tell me how much bigger has it got? Like, Andy, obviously, it's got bigger for you because you're on the producing side. How much bigger has season two become since season one? It's expanded in terms of the vision, in terms of the world building, I guess. We're seeing beyond Carnival Row. I mean, I think when audiences see the first episode, you know, it's next level stuff. I mean, it's, you know, like Chris was saying, just how things have evolved over the years with television. This is on a widescreen cinematic level. The scope and the ambition, and I guess the marriage between VFX and SFX and production design and Chris's cinematography. Yeah, it's a very, very impressive thing. I think um, as well as the world building, I think there's probably there's a bigger sort of VFX muscle uh, this season in terms of realizing that world and expanding that world. Well, because if, you, if you're saying that the visual effects has expanded, I had a look before we came on air and took a look at the IMDb list of visual effects. That is as long as your arm. That's about as long as it gets on anything. So if it's gone up since then, that's pretty impressive. Oh, for sure. It's, uh, you know, Chris and I stand on the shoulders of many, 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 many talented people uh, involved in the show. And it has a lengthy post-production period because of the onus on VFX. Yeah, I'm very proud to be part of the show, working with such talented people. It's a real collaboration. And Chris, working on a big Amazon Prime production series like Carnival Row, you've had experience on another series, the Game of Thrones, which I think a few of our listeners have heard of, where there are different DPs for different episodes. Each cinematographer will add their own flavour, but the the lens package tends to stay the same. Most DPs will look at each other's dailies to get a sense of what's happening. Is that how you sort of operate on a big series like these two? Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, on on the series one of, of Carnival Row, I came after Tony Miller, who was the DP doing the episodes before me. And we, we often talked, looked at each other's, you know, I looked at his dailies and I, you know, we asked questions, asked questions about his lighting, what his lighting plot was, how hard his light was, how soft it was, what filters he was using. 
Uh, what gels on the lights and what lenses, what was his favourite lenses, what, what lenses did he use the most of, all these things actually. And so, so it goes into that kind of memory box and, and sure, you do your own thing. I mean, I think it's interesting how I look at other people's work. I always look at other people's work and think, I can't do that. <laughs> and, then, and then you kind of, then you realise that you, of course you can. But, but it's, um, it's, it's like a fear factor which I quite enjoy. This is a team effort. Of course it is. I mean, every DP will, will put his, his own foot print onto it I suppose I mean I, I, I do the same I mean I look at my work and it's, it is slightly different to other people's work at the same time the studio hasn't really kind of said this is what we want I think they've been we did a lot of testing beforehand and you know they were happy with testing suggested various things and uh, they like the lens package we have we're free to go and do it really with, with the director and off we go. Talk a little bit about that lens package what it is and what the camera is that you're using. Well, I inherited when I worked with Andy on the first series, we did five, episode five and six. So we walked into a kind of predetermined package, really, which was the Arri Mini, um, the shooting widescreen. And then we had a Master Primes, the Arri Master Primes, uh, which are solid, robust lenses, which are very true, um, typically kind of Zeiss kind of Arri kind of uh, engineering. Um, they are a solid lens, they're very sharp, they have a good contrast level and, and there's not much distortion. I mean, some of the lenses have much more distortion and people like distortion these days because of the sharpness of digital cameras. They, they want to make it kind of go back to like the early days of filmmaking. So, but they, I, I like the package. It gives depth, it gives, it gives some warmth and, and it's, a, it's a nice nice lens package to have. How many people have you got working around the camera with you? <laughs> I don't know all their names. No, I do. Obviously, an operator. I kind of light. Took that decision some years ago now. Um, I just feel that um, lighting and operating, I, I really used to enjoy operating. Um, got a great buzz from it. But operating is much more of a mechanical art. You have to spend a lot of time getting it right. Big sets where I have to go off and pre-light and kind of arrange things. I just think it's a better use of my, my kind of skill to kind of be as the cinematographer in charge of the lighting and the camera style as well but have a good operator who can work with Andy and and, and me and, and we can you know, collectively get a good shot. So there's operator a top focus puller you have to have a you know with digital cameras and you know, the depth of field with you know, thin depth of field so you know, a really good focus puller which we've got Dan is fantastic. A good grip team which is you know five or six people um, there's four or five people on camera because there's, there's two cameras we have a steady cam operator we use cranes and we use all the, all the gizmos when we need them. So, and then a big lighting um, setup with 10, 11 sparks and the rigging crew. It just goes on, basically. Finish one day, then it's pre-light the stage for the next day. So it's continuous kind of conveyor belt of action, really. And talking of quality production design, Chris, you worked on The Alienist which some of the production design on the row did remind me of The Alienist a little bit. And I presume that you worked with a production designer, Mara LaPierre-Sloop, did you? Yes, yes, I did. We interviewed Mara on the podcast, and she is just unbelievable what she does. <laughs> she's, she's very talented. and But, you know, the production designers are doing a fabulous job on the row. No, no question. You can see it. Yes, I mean, Yuri, who's, who's the designer this season and, and took, took over on part of the last season, I mean, he's, he's Czech. Um, he's just, I mean, all of his talent. Um, you know, every day we're asking things and he comes up with just superb designs and any problems we have with the design, he's very happy to kind of amend. 
you couldn't ask for a better designer, actually. It's just um, the highest accolade to him and his team because they are just wonderful. I like the way that it is lit. You know, it's not overlit and you obviously get distortions of when you're watching it on different devices which you know it's just a yeah, problem sure. yeah. these days but i would rather see something that's a little bit under than a little bit too blown out you know as a, as a result of the device not through any way that the cine has set set the you know the look of it up yeah i'm happy with the look actually i mean unfortunately i, I don't get to go and do the timing because that's all done in la the way this show works, it, it's all post is all taken over in LA. That's you know kind of final editing and also the look of the show. Um, I have long conversations with um, Alex, who's the post production uh, supervisor producer, and um, we get on fine. And you know I make notes on what we've on the edited uh, shots. So his the colorist and him when he's going through the the timing hopefully adhere to to what I'm asking. And they and then most of the time they do actually. I'm pleased with the look. I mean, it's funny, I was, I was interested, I was looking at episode five and six last night just, just to kind of remind myself what we shot in the first series because we're now obviously into the second series. I've changed the style slightly. I mean, it, you know, it evolves, everything evolves. I think the way Andy directs is, is changed. You go to the next step, you go to the next, you push each other a bit more and, and that clearly happens in, in my work because I don't want to just repeat the same thing. It's just, this is just make it evolve, this push it into a different direction. But yes, um, I enjoy the lighting. I, I look back at stuff I've lit and, and what I'm doing now, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. I like it. <laughs> Other people might not, but I like it. <laughs> oh, good for you. And when you say that some of the things that Andy is doing has changed in this series, what are you talking specifically about? Well, I think we've, got, I think we've both got more experience as we've, as we've come along. We, you know, we, when we first started this show some years ago, we were probably, this was our biggest show probably both of us had done. Um, and now we're in the midst of it, and we're kind of we're branching out. We're, we're, we're you know we've got our roots in there now, so we can kind of you know the tree can grow. It's interesting that we 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 push each other. You know, Andy will push me, and and we have long conversations about um, enjoyable conversations about how we're going to shoot this, and can we shoot it a different way? Can we can we add this to it, or can we take that away? And I think that's where we've moved on to. It's, it's we know each other very well. Uh, we're good mates and uh, you know Andy's a talented director and it's a pleasure to work with him. You know one of the common themes when I talk to a cinematographer and a director when they get on so well and they've got the shorthand they I can't tell you how many times I have been told that it's like a couple of guys at film school just having a good time. <laughs> I've had various people come up to me uh, well well Andy myself have been working and just kind of I mean, <laughs> It's an accolade to, to, I mean, to, to both of us, I suppose. I mean, I don't, we don't, I mean, I, we don't look for it. It's just people come up and say, just the love the way you two work. I mean, it's, you just feel a bit embarrassed. You think, no, we're not having a love affair. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's very happily married to other people. <laughs> but it, it is very enjoyable. And I think people, it has a knock-on effect on the rest of the crew because people, I mean, it can be tense filmmaking. And of course it is, you know, we're up against time schedules and things like this and, it is when you can see that people at the top are being creative, enjoying it, um, and wanting it to work. And I think it makes other people around you equally be able to put their input in, which I think is important, and also to enjoy it. And I think the product, the end product, becomes better. 
Well, I can speak for everybody that's listening. Everybody will have the same idea that I do, and that is that you guys are setting the tone, and without even stepping onto the set, I already can gauge by talking to both of you that it's probably quite a warm and open set, and there's a that you know everybody loves the way that you guys are working together, and that just rubs off on everybody. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm only as good as my team around me. I and mean, without a team which are, are helping me, uh, then I, I don't look very good. And, and they make me look good, which is good. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And Andy, great to talk and find out more about you as a filmmaker and certainly looking forward to your next project. And thank you so much for coming on to Shoot It Now. Well, it's been tremendous. Thank you so much. And Chris, likewise, uh, what a great insight for our cinematographers and crew around the camera to share some of that knowledge that you've imparted. And thanks for coming on to shoot it now as well. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.